Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Collander and every month I speak to a former Oxford student about their memories of their alma mater, the impact of their studies and life after Oxford. In this podcast I'm delighted to speak to a celebrated writer, broadcaster, entertainer and former politician. Giles Brandreth joins me to talk about his extraordinary career and varied interests. We're going to learn about everything from performances on Radio 4's Just a Minute to serving as a government whip during John Major's government. Giles Brandreth, thank you for agreeing to share your story. I'm happy to be here, particularly happy because I think uh, Oxford is the foundation of my story. I think everything I've done in my life uh, reflects my three years as an undergraduate at New College. And what was it like being a, a student in Oxford in the swinging well, 60s? Now, yes, you say the swinging 60s, and it was, because I was there from 67 to 70, and it was the swinging 60s. And indeed, during that time, I um, was lucky enough to meet, among others, um, some of the Beatles, including Paul McCartney. Uh, Jane Asher, who was then a girlfriend of Paul McCartney, um, came to uh, New College and uh, turned up at the New College Ball. I'm not quite sure why. I think she was appearing in a play at the Oxford Playhouse. And she was exhausted because she was appearing in this play and she was going to go to the ball. And I met her and I invited her to uh, take a rest in my room. And my father had told me that the things to do at Oxford were, he said, you've got to become president of the union. You've got which to, you did. Uh, yeah, and you've got to become editor of ISIS, the which university magazine, which I did. And he said, you've got to uh, direct the OUDS, the Oxford University Dramatic Society, which I also did. And that, in many ways, was the the most life-changing of the things that I did while I was at Oxford. But, curiously, so I turned up uh, in the middle of this uh, swinging 60s, uh, and there were people who were rather more uh, radical and with it than I was, <laughs> to put it mildly, and I behaved, I think, like somebody from the 1920s, and I set about achieving these goals. So I'm not sure that I really uh, was a child of my time, though curiously, as a result of doing these things, I became a bit of a sort of figure at Oxford during the 60s. And some of the debates from the Union were televised in those days. The Oxford Union was a sort of, still had, uh, because you'll remember in the 1930s, there was the famous uh, King or Country debate, which was very controversial. You know, would you support King or Country? And the Union voted against supporting King or Country. And it, so it was a sort of controversial place where they came for the opinions of young people. And debates from the Union were televised. And I got a bit of notoriety as a result of this and also all my running around being enthusiastic. And I ended up uh, not only on television on election night, but in 1969, on New Year's Eve, at the end of the 1960s, I found myself on ITV at 10 o'clock at night with my own show, called Child of the Sixties. And I sat uh, on a stool, surrounded by the great and the good of the day, Michael Foote, later leader right. of the Labour Party, um, also a former president of the Union, I think, was one of the guests, uh, an American, Fred Friendly, uh, Elizabeth Longford, an interesting group of people. And we, Ian MacLeod, who, became on, who came on to be the Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer under Edward Heath and died um, shockingly young. So I quizzed these people about the 1960s. So I became a little bit of a, a 60s spokesman, though I can't say 
that I really, I didn't breathe in deeply. I didn't inhale the <laughs> 1960s. I remember the 60s, which I know you're not supposed to do. Uh, Oxford, for me, was a uh, microcosm of the, the macro world into which I went. So it certainly had a huge impact on your life in terms of accelerating what you were already doing and meeting your wife. Yeah. The, the, the real impact, obviously, was meeting my wife, who has defined uh, my life. And I was very lucky because in her I met a person of uh, beauty, quality and integrity. Uh, and um, that's what you need to keep you on the, uh, the straight path as you go through life. You make friends at Oxford. Lifelong You're, friends. Lifelong friends. And you get a chance to try out things. And of course, you were also at Oxford to study. From school, I thought I was going to do English at Oxford. And I discovered the English included medieval English. And I thought that sounds a bit complicated. So I swapped to PPE, philosophy, politics and economics. I thought maybe I'm going to be a politician. Maybe that would be useful. Oh, my gosh. It was so challenging. And they told me, well, if you want to change subjects, you lose your scholarship. Unless you've done whatever the first part of the exams are called. And got through that. And then they said, you can change subjects if you want and they'd invented this new thing, uh, history and modern languages, split subject. But I thought, well, I'll do that. I then moved on to history and modern languages, and my uh, French tutor was a, a marvellous man called Merlin Thomas. Uh, and my history tutor was a brilliant uh, man called Alex de Jong, who's still teaching. Uh, he's now about 80, and uh, wrote a wonderful book on Rasputin. If you want the book on Rasputin, I recommend Alex de Jong. So, hugely privileged to know these sorts of people. And they were so easy to chat to and so very pleasant. Access to, to great people was one of the big privileges. The warden of New College at that time was a man called Sir William Hayter, who had been the ambassador, British ambassador to Moscow. So I decided to go to Moscow during one of my holidays while I was at Oxford. And of course, um, Sir William Hayter, very kindly, former ambassador, gave me introductions. You turn up in Moscow and you're 18, you're 19. The joy of being 18, 19, 20 is that you're young. I thought people took an interest in me because I was interesting. I now realise they took an interest in me because I was young. People like young people. So exploit it while you can, uh, which I, I think I did. Don't fool yourself that they're interested in you. They aren't. It's your youth that they find exhilarating and invigorating. So it was a wonderful place to be, and I was entirely blessed in every way. Everything is there. I think you do need to get out and do it. In life, as we know, um, you need perseverance. Uh, you also need, the truth is, also you need focus. When I was at Oxford, I, I gave the impression of dabbling, but actually I was focused. I knew what I wanted to achieve, and on the whole, I ticked those boxes. But happily, actually, looking back on it, I realised I did make friends at the same time. So it was a wholly happy and successful experience. And many listeners will already be very familiar with your love of words, appearances on Just a Minute, and in Dictionary Corner on Countdown. Let's continue by exploring another dimension of your professional life, your years as a Tory MP from 1992 to 1997. What inspired you to become involved in politics? Well, I think I wanted to be in politics from being a boy, uh, and certainly when I was at Oxford in the Union, lots of politicians came. I remember the first politician I met at the station to bring them to the Union was Tony Benn, who I got to know quite well when he was an old man. Uh, and a really wonderful person, a great diarist. And I think he inspired me, actually, to keep a diary. And I've published a diary of my life as a politician. Uh, I wanted to change the world. Uh, in fact, of course, you discover that's 
not quite as easy as you thought when you get there. Um, and then you're reminded of a great line. I'm trying to remember the poet who came up with this great line. He who would do good must do it by minute particulars. It's a good line. And you can make small changes and they can add up to something. But I did introduce the 1994 Marriage Act as a backbencher. This is the legislation that enables people to get married in um, in places other than register offices, stately homes, castles, historic houses. That's as a result of my piece of legislation. And because until then, you had to get married in a in a register office in a council building, and they were rather, you know, often they were very dull. So I think that has changed the nature of of civil weddings in this country. So that's, I'm proud of that. And you served as a government whip during a period of a dwindling government majority just before the Labour landslide in 1997. What was it like trying to ensure discipline in the Conservative Party during those difficult years? Well, it's very different from what people think. It's assumed that the whips are applying the thumbscrews and cornering people outside the lavatory, twisting their arms, forcing them to vote this way or that. It isn't quite like that. You find, in fact, on the whole, it's the old... Aesop's fable, it's the the warm sun that persuades the fellow to take off his jacket. The cold wind makes him huddle, pull the jacket closer around him, so that some of the most successful whipping is done with a smile and with encouragement. And whips are the human resources officers uh, of Parliament. They've got to understand the men and women in their charge, and they've got to understand their aspirations, their problems, their hopes and uh, encourage them. Obviously, the job of the whip is to secure the business of the government of the day, and that can be challenging, particularly as in the case of John Major all those years ago, or in the case of Theresa May now, with a small majority. That's a challenging role. I, it was the most satisfying job I ever had. What do you prefer, being a politician or satirist? Well, I like doing whatever I'm doing at the time, and my life now is a variety of things, but I try to focus on what I'm doing. I write murder mysteries, and I love doing that. Uh, My murder mysteries are set in uh, Victorian England, the London of the 1880s and 1890s, and I feature Oscar Wilde, a huge Oxford character, of course, um, in his day at Oxford, featuring Oscar Wilde and his real-life friendship with the writer Arthur Conan Doyle, the great of Sherlock Holmes. They were genuinely friends. They met in 18... 89, and I've used their friendship to make them a kind of Holmes and Watson for my murder mysteries. So I write murder mysteries. Uh, I'm not really involved in politics. I do, as it were, I have outside interests in the world beyond. I'm the uh, Chancellor of uh, the University of Chester. used to be the MP for Chester, and I was very keen that the college in Chester, which had a long heritage as a Church of England teaching college should uh, become a university. It was associated, gave it degrees, its degrees through Liverpool University. And my family come from that part of the world. And so I championed its university status in the 1990s. And I'm now the Chancellor. So I, I take a serious interest in uh, higher education through that. Um, that work. So I have a, a serious side and then I have a, a fun side. I, I like appearing in plays. I was most recently in a musical version of The Importance of Being Earnest, playing Lady Bracknell. And I appear on radio in programmes like Just a Minute, on television and things like Have I Got News for You. One of the problems is uh, people like to put you in a box. And I think it means it's a little, it's a little if you like doing a variety of things, it can be difficult. I, I remember Norman St. John Stevens 
uh, another interesting university figure who, uh, who was a, a big Cambridge figure and then a big Oxford figure. He was at both universities at the end of the 40s, I think. Um, he advised me when I became an MP, he said, you know, uh, when it comes to the, the humour, use it sparingly. If you're too funny, they dismiss you as a lightweight. Uh, and that, I know, is, is a risk. So I like doing various things, but every time I do what I'm doing, I try to take it seriously. And coming to radio and comedy, how difficult is it to speak for just a minute without hesitation, repetition or deviation? I love just a minute because it's real. It's done in real time. It's not edited. It's against the clock. You do other programmes, like Have I Got News For You, they record two and a half hours, edited down to 28 minutes. Well, you know... The real challenge, the adrenaline rush, comes from just a minute. You're there. You don't know the subject. You've got to ride the horse for 60 seconds without hesitation, deviation, or what is the other one? Repetition. There you are. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's quite challenging, and it's fun. You've often written about the importance of humour. You've said that, I quote, we survive by finding the humour in life. You've also written a book, The Lost Art of Having Fun, about games to enjoy with family and friends. Is there a danger of losing our sense of fun in our hectic modern world? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, you can become so busy. I mean, life is, is tough. A sense of humour can get you through almost anything. But I did do a book called The Seven Secrets of Happiness. And one of the most interesting secrets in of The Seven Secrets, I, read, I got them from a man called Dr Anthony Clare, brilliant Irish psychiatrist. And one of the most interesting is not to resist change. People who resist change become unhappy. And you've got to be open to change, otherwise you will be unhappy. And I think, actually, I'm quite good at being open. I mean, there's some things I don't like about the modern world. I really don't. All the technology I'm not good at. I do not wish to learn another frigging password, I can tell you. But being open to change will make you happier. And I think I'm forward-looking. And I understand that your latest project is about the remarkable playwright Noel Coward. You'll be off to visit Jamaica, where Noel Coward died, later this month. Could you tell us more about this pilgrimage? Uh, Noel Coward uh, lived and later died in Jamaica at a wonderful place called Firefly, not far from where Ian Fleming lived. Ian Fleming's house is famous. Noel Coward's is less famous, but it's certainly, if you're ever there, worth making a pilgrimage. And uh, I'm part of a group of people who are hoping to set up not next year, but well, in the next couple of years, a Noel Card festival to celebrate a man who was a great wit, a raconteur, a songwriter, a performer, an actor, a film star, but a playwright. Terence Radigan, Bernard Shaw, Noel Card. When we come, and maybe Harold Pinter, when we look back on the writers of the 20th century, those will be the English playwrights that people remember. So it's nice. I, I like going to places associated with people. And uh, in Jamaica, there's sunshine too. Giles Brandreth, thank you very much for sharing your insights about Oxford, comedy, politics and beyond. I don't think there were many insights, but I was happy to do it because Oxford was very good to me. We're very pleased that you were able to spend much more than just a minute with us. Boom! For more episodes of Alumni Voices, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk. 